Welcome to the Behind the Headlines podcast from Lee Enterprises. I'm Terry Lipschitz, senior producer at Lee and your host for this episode. Over the past century, Florida has seen rapid growth, with less than 1 million residents in 1920 and more than 22 million today. Many new residents were retirees who relocated to the state either full-time or as seasonal snowbirds, residents who flock south for the warmer winter weather and then return to their home states for the summer. Much of the migration started after World War II. It was something my own paternal grandparents did. My grandfather fought in Europe during World War II and worked as an electrician after returning home to Long Island, New York. My grandmother was a stay-at-home mom raising her two sons. They eventually retired and relocated to West Palm Beach, Florida, where they lived out their final years. But are hurricanes putting the Florida retirement dream at risk? Following Hurricane Ian that slammed the state late September, Dr. Robin Backen from the University of Miami wrote an article for the conversation titled, Why So Many People Have Moved to Florida and Into Harm's Way. We have a link to that article in the show notes of this podcast so you can read the full report. After a short break, you will hear my interview with Dr. Backen, who talked about the article, the state's history of population growth, and things to think about if you're considering retiring to Florida. The interview was also recorded prior to Hurricane Nicole, a rare November hurricane to hit the state that caused additional damage in what has been a very active tropical storm season. I'd like to introduce Dr. Robin Backen. She is the founding director of the Office of Civic and Community Engagement and an associate professor of history at the University of Miami in Florida. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This is an interesting topic that you recently wrote about for the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about the article you wrote? Sure. So the article was a response to Hurricane Ian, which, as most people know, hit uh, southwest Florida on September 28th. It's a devastating storm, category four, close to being a category five hurricane left significant wind damage and flooding and barrels across the peninsula up to northern Florida. And so the question always when there's a storm of this nature is what impact is it going to have on people's desire to move to Florida? We know that Florida is a destination state, has been for over a century. So how do people respond when they see this type of destruction? What impact does it have? And so that's really the focus of the story. Now, you're obviously a uh, professor of history, and in your article had mentioned that the current population is about 22 million. It's expected to increase to uh, over 25 million within the decade. But I also was looking at some historical data, and just 100 years ago, the population of Florida was under 1 million. What has uh, driven that expansion? So there are a lot of factors that have driven the expansion. One of the most important is the idea of so-called reclaiming the Everglades. So this massive initiative in the middle of the 19th century to literally drain the Everglades, to make the Everglades habitable, for residential development, for tourism, and for agriculture. And so that project led by a Philadelphia business person named Hamilton Diston, with help from the state of Florida and the federal government, led to the dramatic transformation 
of the landscape of Central Florida. And so as a result, more and more people beginning in the late 19th and early 20th century started coming. That drainage made it possible for railroads to stretch to southeastern and southwestern Florida. So when transportation became easier, more people could get here. Those same people who built the railroads, Henry Plant and Henry Flagler, built hotels along the railroads so people would have a destination, but also created land companies to actually sell land. So it wasn't just about bringing tourists to Florida, it was about permanent development. And so what you see when you look at demographic and population data for Florida since the turn of the 20th century is just a steady increase in population with a big boom in the post-World War II period that continues to today. It's interesting you mentioned the post-World War II era just because from a personal level, my my grandparents in the 70s, it was, I, I guess it would almost be stereotypical in the sense where they, my grandfather worked in New York as, as a blue-collar uh, electrician. Ultimately, they retired to uh, the, the West Palm Beach era. Has there been changes since kind of that time? I, I guess they relo- relocated in the 1970s. What do things look like these days? Just more and more development. <laughs> so, um, of course, much of the property that uh, was considered valuable, that people sought, was waterfront property. So there's just been, since that period, increased development along the coast. Obviously, the advent of air conditioning um, made South Florida a much more attractive place. And so there is really this sense of not just development, but also increasing coastal development. Now, of course, we know that um, the coast is a risky place to build and develop. We recognize the impacts of climate change. It's not something that's hypothetical for the future. Here in South Florida, we experience the impacts of sea level rise and climate change, not just in the form of more intense and more frequent hurricanes, but also with increased flooding, higher heat, more days of high heat and humidity. So these factors are becoming um, a lived experience for people here in South Florida. What has climate done for the cost of living, too, in Florida? So what's interesting is because there are so many factors that draw people like your grandparents to South Florida continually, um, the impacts of climate haven't yet had much impact on maybe, you know, what you might think would be the logical outcome, which would be that real estate values would decrease. In fact, what we've seen is that Miami in the spring of 2022 became the most unaffordable metropolitan region in the country. Now that's not because the price of housing is more expensive in Miami than it is in say San Francisco or New York. It's that the affordability gap, so the gap between what people earn as a median income and the median price of housing is the highest in the country. That's both for renters as well as for homeowners. So we've seen over the course of the pandemic an increase of over 50% in rental costs as well as over 50% in the cost of buying a home. Much of that has to do with the fact that people still want to live in warm, sunny South Florida. 
And the pandemic also had an impact on raising the numbers of people moving here. With folks moving, and we spoke a little bit this about this offline, you'd mentioned folks are, are relocating to Florida thanks to telecommuting in a lot of ways and bringing their salaries with them. What has that done to the marketplace? Sure. So when you have people in industries where it is easier for them to work remotely, in industries like tech or like finance, we've seen many people come to Florida from other states that might have a higher tax burden. So in the state of Florida, we don't have an income tax. So that's attractive to many people where uh, they think that their dollar can go further. And we also see that many people in those industries obviously earn a much higher salary than the average salary of folks living in Florida, where the basis of our economy is a service sector tourist economy. So in essence, they're coming in with a lot of cash. So when a house goes on the market, there might be you know, 20, 25 potential buyers. And when people from other places come in with cash, in essence, it's pricing local people out of the market. So people who've been living here, who maybe have been renting and thinking that they're saving money, putting it aside for a down payment, they want to get a mortgage, they're, they're qualified now for a mortgage, and they go to put a bid on a house, and they find that there are five other people offering cash for the house. And so that makes it nearly impossible for them to enter the buyer's market. And of course, now we're seeing record mortgage rates. Uh, so where just a couple years ago, we saw interest rates about 3%. It's more than double that now. Um, and the cost of housing has gone up. So it's really putting a squeeze on people who currently live here who don't have the kind of salary that can support the increase in housing costs and rental costs that's been happening over the last two years. I know your expertise is largely in, in the Miami area. Are you seeing these trends in other parts of the state or is this uh, really unique to the Miami area? It is exacerbated in the Miami area, but it's certainly happening across the state. And so we see more and more people uh, not only moving to coastal areas, but also a little bit further inland. Again, the devastation that we saw from Hurricane Ian, a lot of people who move to areas along the southwest coast typically might be people from the Midwest historically, um, living in areas like the barrier islands of, of Sanibel or Captiva. So there's a long history of people moving there for retirement. The difficulty that's faced then, of course, is if you're on a fixed income, even if you own your home, you think that you have a sense of what your costs are going to be because you have a mortgage. In most instances, your mortgage is fixed. But then there are other expenses that come into play, particularly after a storm. So I mentioned that we don't have a state income tax, but we do have state property tax. So if the value of your property is going up, your property taxes are going up. In addition, we in Florida have to have various kinds of homeowners insurance as a homeowner. So we need windstorm insurance if you have a mortgage. If you're in a flood zone, you need flood insurance. That's on top of your regular homeowners insurance. So after storms, those costs 
are likely going to rise. So people on a fixed income, it becomes difficult for them to even be able to anticipate what those added costs are going to be. And you mentioned some of these added costs and they can adjust, but they can also adjust too after a storm or after an area maybe gets reevaluated, right? Floodplains can change. Uh, You might move somewhere that isn't considered to be in the flood zone, but that might change. How have you seen that change? So there is more discussion and has been more discussion in recent years about what it means to rebuild after a disaster. Do we simply look at where the houses are and rebuild the houses in the same place? or do we reconsider our land use and our development patterns? So there have been discussions, for example, about buying out homes that are in areas that are prone to flooding, storm surge, other kinds of impacts of storms. So there's a federal buyout program, there's also a statewide program. One of the issues is it's often difficult to get those programs into action. And so while you might have money to do it, it can take a long time. And if somebody has lost their home in a storm, their interest is to get a home. They want to have somewhere to live as quickly as possible. So it's a a very delicate balance between thinking about putting people back in a home and also thinking through what are our land use development and building patterns, given what we know about climate change, about sea level rise, about storm surge, about heat. How do we do that in a way that is sustainable and resilient? And so, you know, oftentimes the easiest solution is simply to rebuild in the same place. Now, there have been changes to building code after various storms, most significantly after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, where there was a more statewide uniform building code. There have been adjustments to that building code since. Uh, And so there are more components of building in adaptation and mitigation, both into an individual home, whether that's elevation, wet proofing, dry proofing, thinking about what kind of roof you have, if you have hurricane shutters or impact glass, all of these considerations help make the home more resilient, but they also add to the cost. Many of the uh, listeners of this program live in the Midwest and other places that you would typically see considering, you know, becoming snowbirds, a a resident, an older resident who might migrate to a state like Florida or Arizona during the winter months, or maybe decide to permanently uh, retire and, and move to a state, a warmer state like Florida or Arizona, what kind of advice um, should someone who's considering this type of move listen to prior to making, you know, a really large purchase and, and relocation plan? I would say there are several factors you want to con- consider. The first is what is the actual property that you would be investing in? What's its elevation? Is it at sea level? Is it ten feet above sea level? That makes a difference. How far is it from the coast? Because again, when you see storm surge of 15 to 18 feet, that storm surge makes its way inland. So you want to understand what is the modeling? What are the impacts of storm surge on your property? Also, what kinds of adaptation and mitigation factors does that property have built into it, right? Is it elevated, not just in terms of 
how high it is above sea level, but does it have other factors? Like is the first floor even higher, right? So that if there is potential flooding, your living space isn't going to be affected. So those are important considerations. Then you also wanna think about the area that you live in. How effective is your community in terms of thinking about access to resources during a storm? So what does the power grid look like? Um, are you likely to lose power? And if you're likely to lose power, how quickly can you expect to get it back? I mentioned Sanibel Island earlier. We all saw on the news, the bridge that connects Sanibel to the mainland was destroyed during the hurricane. And so that meant that the people who remained on Sanibel Island during the storm were isolated without access to resources, without power. So again, think about what is the infrastructure around you. And then also costs that might not seem readily apparent when you're just looking at the cost of the home. So are you going to be able to get uh, windstorm insurance? Are you in a floodplain? What is the likelihood of your property insurance going up? So again, these are all considerations to think about when you're considering relocating to South Florida, and especially if you're going to be purchasing property. You touched on it a little bit too, but the the escape route is uh, really important also, knowing knowing that escape route and being prepared in case there is an emergency. Right, and that's always a question people ask, was there enough warning given? Um, we have scientists who can track storms, but they're always conditions that can change. So you wanna know what is your evacuation route? What do you need to do to your home in order to make it safe when you evacuate? And what can you expect when you come back? So those are really important considerations to think about. Again, I don't wanna suggest that South Florida is the only place that has climate related impacts, right? We've all seen the wildfires out West, drought, tornadoes, every place is experiencing the impacts of the changes wrought by climate change. We just want to be mindful, particularly in the state of Florida, about how we're addressing those issues, how we're adapting, and what kinds of considerations individuals should think about. Sure. And there's, of course, other many retirement communities along the Carolinas, Georgia, the Gulf Coast, uh, those states, which see the impacts of these storms as, as well as climate change uh, too. The state of Florida has seen a political shift in, in the recent decades uh, further to the right. Uh, obviously, you have a Republican governor. The uh, legislature is, is led by Republicans. You have two Republican senators, and most of the congressional delegation is Republican. What has that meant for laws regarding climate and the impact at the state level? It does make it more difficult for local municipalities or counties to try to implement some of the solutions that they would like to implement. So there are statewide preemption laws, which in essence say that municipalities can't enact certain kinds of laws that might appear to challenge the authority of the state. And so we've seen those state preemption laws have an impact, for example, on gun control laws at the local level, on the desire to get rid of plastic bags at the local level. 
And it has been an issue historically in terms of trying to adapt to climate. However, given what we see on a daily basis about the impacts of climate change, despite having a Republican controlled political system, there has been a change in the recognition about climate and the need to address it. So Governor DeSantis does talk about the impacts of climate and the need for the state to recognize those impacts. Uh, the state, as well as Miami-Dade County and other counties have worked with the Army Corps of Engineers to create adaptation and mitigation strategies. There are local efforts being put in place and that have been put in place both in the city of Miami, Miami-Dade County, and other municipalities uh, along the coast, both in the west, as well as on the east coast. Things like putting in pumps to get rid of flood water, putting in um, seawalls in order to prevent storm surge, but also thinking more creatively about barriers to sea level rise. So looking at restoring mangrove habitats, building artificial reefs, again, to mitigate against storm surge, building at higher elevation, again, adapting the Florida building code. All of these adaptation mitigation strategies are being implemented at various levels in terms of the municipal, the county, and the state. I guess lastly, post Ian, what are we seeing right now in Florida? Has, has the housing market changed at all just in the short term in these few weeks? Has there been any less interest in renting or, or is it kind of business as usual for Florida because hurricanes happen and it's just part of daily life and it's something you deal with? So it's hard to see right now what the very localized impacts have been across the country. Of course, we've seen a kind of leveling out of, of housing costs. So where there was precipitous rise for the last two years, now there's a leveling out. Much of that likely has to do with the rise in mortgage rates, as well as many people just being priced out of the market because housing costs have risen so much. But what we've seen time and time again after various storms, you know, most recently in, in 2017, and 2018, after a spate of storms at that point, is developers, buyers, people wanting to relocate, see that, oh, it looks like the housing market is, is going down a little bit because there's been significant damage. This is a good time to invest. And so many of those properties actually get bought up fairly quickly. We've, we've seen that happen, again, after you know various storms. Um, there might be a brief lull where it's sort of unclear what's going to happen with recovery, what's going to happen with the insurance market, how quickly are people going to be able to rebuild. But fairly soon after that, uh, the market ticks up again. So it's doubtful that Hurricane Ian will lead to fundamental changes in this pattern of a kind of pro-growth and development machine that we've seen throughout Florida's history. Dr. Backen, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about this. It's a fascinating subject, and, and as I mentioned, uh, one that I think will be uh, of high interest to our listenership in, in the region that we cover. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Headlines. You can find us on every podcast platform, and we'd love it if you could take a moment to subscribe and leave a review. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism by supporting the newspaper in your community. I'm Terry Lipschutz. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Headlines from Lee Enterprises.